The Local, a French news source, writes that one of the most endearing stereotypes about the French is that they are romantic, charming, seductive, and just downright sexy. And while some French people are quite sexy, others are about as appealing as completing your French tax declaration. If that is the case, then where does this image come from? After all, knowing how the French have managed to all become exotically sexy might help my own country reverse its reputation that all of us are fat and lazy. Of course, it doesn't help our standing that McDonald's sells on average 75 hamburgers every second and 6.5 million every single day. Emily Chabal, a French expert, believes that the nation's fashion industry, cinema, and outspoken woman, such as Simone de Beauvoir, have crafted an image of a hyper-romantic French society. In reality, however, France remains remarkably conservative, with gender roles often upholding Catholic beliefs that impose strict roles on how men and women interact. Still, the term French added to anything seems to automatically make it sexier. There is the French kiss. You might dream of having your house cleaned by a French maid, and hopefully you never have to deal with French pox, which is how the Italians, Brits, and indigenous peoples of the New World all used to refer to the venereal disease of syphilis. You may even be just like me, always determined to find a good French stick. You know, the colloquial term for a wonderful baguette. Okay, so maybe I was counting on your mind being stuck in the gutter there, for that is where most of this episode is going to reside. Napoleon Bonaparte doesn't fit the stereotype of a sexy Frenchman. Rather, he represents the majority of us, someone who is desperate to chase the ideal of love, but one who is unable to recognize true love from fool's gold. France's capital is a perfect locale for conversations regarding fools falling in love with the wrong people. The travel blog Best France Forever writes that Paris is the place you go for a naughty weekend, to fall in love, to resuscitate the embers of a flagging romance. The city colludes in the seduction, providing a gorgeous backdrop of buildings, boulevards, parks, and bistros to kiss, nuzzle, or propose in. Paris has seduced more people than Casanova and Leonardo DiCaprio combined. A geographical aphrodisiac as effective as oysters or peppers. But will the world's foremost Parisian general be able to conquer his own heart there? You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This is the second of seven episodes regarding Napoleon Bonaparte. Episode number two, Napoleon in Love. The movie Vanilla Sky provides one of my all-time favorite quotes. The answer to 99 questions out of 100 
is money. I tend to add to the quote within my own classes by stating that the remaining answer throughout history is typically women. The French Revolution was fueled by Enlightenment ideas, but it never fully grasped what role women should play within the new society that was being constructed on the fly. Part of the problem was the famous French philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who claimed in both the La Contracte Sociale and Emily that fundamental biological differences between men and women lay at the base of everything else. These naturally occurring differences resulted in different temperaments and abilities. Worse for his modern-day reputation, Rousseau argued that these differences made women designed for man's delight. In his idealized world, men would be educated in the arts of governing and fighting, while women would spend their days learning handiwork, infant care, and the pleasures of the home. The Members' Bulletin of the Napoleonic Society of America points out that in Rousseau's model there was a hierarchy. Males first, females second. Yet Rousseau wasn't a dictator, and others stepped forward advancing the fight for gender equality, which sadly is still lacking today. Jean Cartat published his work on the admission of women to the rights of citizenship and successfully argued that the root of the supposed difference between men and women was how society treated each of the sexes. Turns out that if you only teach girls how to do housework, then the only thing that they'll be prepared to do is housework. Olympe de Gorge, a prominent feminist and writer during the revolution, argued in her Declaration of the Rights of Women and the Female Citizen in 1791 that women were entitled to the same rights as men, including the right to vote and hold public office. She wrote that women are born free and remain equal to men in rights. Social distinctions can only be based on the common utility. Similarly, women's activist Pauline Lyon argued in a 1792 speech to the National Convention that women should be granted full political rights, stating unequivocally that the French people have recognized the rights of man. It is time to recognize the rights of women. Let us raise ourselves up to this great idea, to this sublime principle, and we shall be worthy of the revolution which has called us to liberty and equality. Women rose up to make demands and instigated a number of the riots that emerged from local bread shortages. Revolutionary women specifically demanded that the National Assembly crack down on prostitution, which gave the impression that women were merely tools to be used for the pleasure of men. They also made important claims to the rights of initiating a divorce, the ability to wear pants, the right to vote, and a double tax on scoundrel bachelors. They dressed for the role that they wanted, lying around the Palace of Versailles in Turkish trousers, with pistols and knives tucked into their belts. Ultimately, however, they were left out of the plethora of different constitutions that emerged from the revolution. Instead, men who thought as Rousseau did carried the debate. 
Abbey Sirius, a prominent figure in the revolution, argued in his What is the Third Estate pamphlet that women's role was to inspire virtue and educate their children to become good citizens. Similarly, writer Nicholas de Bonville argued in his publication The Women's Friend that women should stay out of politics and focus instead on domestic duties, stating the only things necessary to a woman are a good husband, children, and an honest household. Politics, warfare, finance, these should be left to men. Napoleon didn't have a lot of positive experiences with women during his upbringing. His mother was known for being a strong, independent woman who took an active role in raising her children. She was strict and disciplined her kids frequently, instilling in her children a sense of self-discipline, independence, and ambition. That last of which the little Corsican was filled to the brim with. Napoleon's relationship with his mother was quite complicated. He was devoted to her and often sought out her advice. But he also resented her for her strictness and her refusal to support his military ambitions. Historian Frank McLinn tells us that throughout the entirety of his life, he thought of women as being totally without honor, duplicious, and liars. There are no known encounters with the fairer sex during Napoleon's youth. This was largely because he spent his formative years in Brienne, a French boys' military academy. He began life at the school when he hit the age of nine. Historians disagree about the extent that homosexual relationships were allowed within the school's purview, but all agree that there was a significant number of boys who, like the Spartans of old, experimented with the only individuals that were around them. Napoleon was reportedly disgusted by the acts that were occurring around him, displaying some clear-cut homophobic tendencies. While most homophobia comes from nothing, Napoleon's fear was real, as he was approached by multiple boys and was forced to fight his way free at least once from an unwanted encounter. That incident occurred when Napoleon was about 10 or 11 years old. Dussault, a fellow student at the school, had been making unwanted sexual advancements towards Napoleon, which he had rebuffed. However, one day Dussault went too far and attempted to kiss Napoleon against his will. Enraged, Napoleon reportedly picked up a stool and hit Dussault over the head with it, knocking him to the ground. The fight was quickly broken up by their fellow students, and both Napoleon and Dussault were reportedly punished for their behavior. This obviously negative experience explained some of his later aversion to homosexuality, as the general would go on to state that homosexuality is a disgusting thing, which mankind will one day condemn as strongly as it does murder. Still, there are historians that look at the closeness between Napoleon and his military aides to argue that Napoleon's outright hatred of homosexuality had more to do with his own internal feelings. These historians make the argument that his external hate comes from self-loathing, and that he perhaps was bisexual, or even a closeted gay man. 
McLynn explores one thread in this story with a Corsican named Belloc, who was nine years older than Napoleon. Belloc, a sculptor, is alleged to have had a relationship with the future French emperor, but when he attempted to rekindle some feelings in 1802, he was soundly rebuffed, to the point that Napoleon had his old friend executed. The other name that shows up for historians attempting to make the case of a bisexual Bonaparte is Bertrand, one of Napoleon's top lieutenant generals. The two men were certainly close friends, but some believe that the relationship transcended friendship, with historian Michael Bors insinuating that Napoleon's notes to Bertrand are the most intimate of his surviving letters. They certainly suggest that there was a strong emotional bond between the two men. Whether this bond was also sexual, however, is open to a matter of interpretation. America, like many other nations, has a quite large record of anti-LGBTQ politicians who have been later outed after being caught in illegal acts with members of the same sex. GQ magazine had some fun with one such scandal by publishing an article beneath the impressive title of Anti-Gay Ohio Republican Resigns After Surprise Having Sex with a Man in the State Capitol. The New York Times published a more concise but equally eye-grabbing headline in 2012 when it published the article entitled, Homophobic? Maybe You're Gay. The article goes into a peer-reviewed study from the Journal of Psychology that is summarized by the Daily Beast in the following way. The researchers isolated a subgroup of participants more than 20% of self-described highly straight individuals who indicated some level of same-sex attraction, and who were significantly more likely than other participants to favor anti-gay policies, to be willing to assign significant harsher punishments to perpetrators of petty crimes if they were presumed to be homosexual, and to express greater implicit hostility towards gay subjects. Thus, our research suggests that some who oppose homosexuality do tacitly harbor same-sex attraction, they concluded. The psychological mechanism behind this subgroup's anti-LGBTQ vitriol is, in theory, relatively simple. They are taking out their own issues with their own sexual identity on other people. As Netta Weinstein, the study's lead author, said in a press release, they may be threatened by gays and lesbians because homosexuals remind them of similar tendencies within themselves. So if you are an American politician who happens to be listening right now, there may be no more effective way to prove to the world that you're not straight than to continue to target the LGBTQ plus communities. Ultimately, we don't know for sure what Napoleon's true thoughts on the matter were. We do, however, have troves of information from the man himself regarding his encounters with the fairer sex. 
Like many, he was seduced by the city of Paris. While stationed in the City of Lights, the 18-year-old Napoleon went to the city's red-light district that happened to be found within the old gardens of Cardinal Richelieu's palace. Even at such an establishment, his approach was clumsy, waiting until he was approached by a girl who was willing to answer questions regarding how she had come to such a life. She was the fourth such girl that he engaged with within the brothel. The day after the deed had been done, Napoleon wrote in great scientific detail about his first sexual encounter, claiming that she was slight, slim, and feminine. Here is how he remembered the flirtation before the act. I had just come out of the Italian opera and was walking at a good pace along the alleys of the Palace Royale. My spirit, stirred by the feelings of vigor which are natural to it, was indifferent to the cold. But when once my mind became chilled, I felt the severity of the weather and took refuge in the galleries. I was just entering the iron gates when my eyes became fixed on a person of the other sex. The time of night, her figure, and her youth left me in no doubt what her occupation was. I looked at her. She stopped not with the imprudent air common to her class, but with a manner that was quite in harmony with the charm of her appearance. This struck me. Her timidity encouraged me, and I spoke to her. I spoke to her, I, who more sensible than any to the horror of her condition, have always felt stained by even a look from such a person. But her pallor, her frail form, her soft voice, left me not a moment in suspense. They walked to the gardens of the Palace Royale. He asked if there weren't a better occupation for her, which she replied, No, sir, one must live. Napoleon continues writing, I was charmed. I saw that she at least gave me an answer, a success which I had never met with before. He asked her where she was from, Nantes, how she had lost her virginity. An officer ruined me. Whether she was sorry for it, yes, very how she'd gotten to Paris, and finally, after a further barrage of questions, whether she would go back with him to her rooms so that we will warm ourselves and you can satisfy your desire. He ends by writing, I had no intention of becoming overscrupulous at this stage. I had already tempted her so that she would not consider running away when pressed by the argument I had prepared for her, and I did not want her to start feigning an honesty that I wished to prove she did not possess. Towards the end of his life, Napoleon wrote an article entitled A Dialogue on the Nature of Love. Humorously, he dedicated the work to his captors on the island of St. Helena. Some of the more interesting takeaways from the work include the idea that there were two types of love, physical love, and spiritual love. He argued that physical love was based on sensual attraction, while spiritual love was based on a deeper emotional connection. Harkening back to his pre-revolutionary days spent reading the chauvinistic Rousseau, Napoleon believed that men and women were fundamentally different in their approach to love. He argued that men were more focused on physical love, while women were more interested in emotional connections. He believed that true love could only exist between equals. 
arguing that relationships based on power imbalances, such as those between a ruler and a subject, were doomed to fail. And he was skeptical of traditional marriage, which he saw as a social institution rather than a personal one. He further believed that individuals should be free to choose their own partners based on love rather than social status or economic consideration. Lastly, in what appeared to have been an about-face from the days of his youth, Napoleon revealed that he had become open to the idea of same-sex relationships. In the dialogue, he suggests that physical love between two men could be just as fulfilling as love between a man and a woman, arguing that love should be judged based on its emotional content rather than the gender of the participants. The biggest reveal from the dialogue about his first encounter in a brothel was that sex to him was a mere sensation that he felt was largely harmful to society as a whole. Even after he found what he imagined to be his perfect romantic partner, Napoleon remained quite stoic in his approach to women. A French feminist asked him in 1800, what woman, dead or alive, do you consider to be the greatest? That is a fantastic question, and since I highly doubt that she's listening to this, I won't say my wife. For me, the answer likely remains England's Elizabeth I, for the sheer fact that she overcame one of the worst childhoods imaginable, seized power within a male's role, refused to saddle herself with a man who would only serve to limit her own authority, and did an amazing job in the most difficult of times. We will eventually cover her spectacular story sometime down the road. Napoleon could have answered in the same way. After all, her rule predated his own by nearly 200 years. But his blunt response was merely, the one who has the most children. That particular criteria certainly excludes England's virgin queen. Women were at the center of his political break from the Corsican nationalist Paoli. As we discussed in our prior episode, Napoleon had hitched his wagon firmly to the would-be separatist and had risked expulsion from the French military in order to serve as Paoli's fixer. That relationship broke completely in 1793, with Napoleon leading French revolutionary forces to disarm Paoli's army so that he could be brought to trial. To those who believed that Napoleon was endlessly ambitious, this served as an opportunity for him to assert his own authority in Corsica, as well as gaining the goodwill of the French government. But McLinn sees the influence of women in the violent split. He points out an obscure line written down by one of Napoleon's close friends, which reveals that Bonaparte caught Paoli sleeping with his godmother. He combines this act with evidence of the general's thought process in an anti-Paoli essay from 1793, where Napoleon accused Paoli of attacking the fatherland with foreigners. McLinn tells us that we may then reasonably infer that Napoleon was deeply worried about three things, illicit sexual relations, the attempt to fuse Corsica and France, and the idea of a fatherland invaded. 
since it is a commonplace of psychoanalysis confirmed in hundreds of case studies of neurotics that concern about the fatherland really indicates concern about the mother. It thus seems reasonable to assume that Napoleon's antagonism towards Paoli was, at the unconscious level, something to do with his mother. We discussed previously that Napoleon didn't have a lot of love for his father Carlo, whom he believed had betrayed his country and led the family into financial ruin. But there was also a lot of gossip and discussion on the island about whether Carlo was actually his biological father. Napoleon doesn't look like Carlo, nor does he look anything like his brothers in any way, shape, or form. He happened to be short and stocky, while Carlo was tall, measuring over six feet and remarkably slender. Napoleon had a round, full face with prominent features, including a large nose and heavily lidded eyes, while Carlo had a more angular face with a prominent chin, a high forehead, and a straight nose. Their hair color as well as their eye color never matched up. The clear differences resulted in a number of individuals whispering about whether Letizia had had an affair. Paoli happened to be one of the four known father figures of Napoleon. The betrayal upon walking in on him with his godmother may have been too much to wipe from his memory. Like Carlo, Paoli had betrayed Napoleon. To those who might suggest that I'm taking this too far, the Code Napoleon his total rewrite of the French legal system included the line that investigation of paternity is forbidden. The clash between Paoli and Napoleon occurred in May of 1793. It was disastrous for both of them, as Napoleon lost a number of close friends in the fighting. Paoli, however, managed to escape and spent the rest of his life agitating the French from the shores of England. Oddly enough, the French revolutionary government, which was quite a mess at this point in history, misunderstood the fighting that occurred between the two Corsicans as some sort of complex scheme designed to help Paoli. They noted the historical closeness between the two men and decided to make life miserable for the Bonaparte family declaring them enemies of the state, and seizing most of their land and possessions, including his ancestral home. While it is possible that they truly were confused, in reality they likely feared the popularity, ambition, and competency that the young general had already begun to splay during the conflict. Unable to maintain a living in Corsica, Napoleon moved his family into the belly of the beast, arriving in Toulon, a city 500 miles to the south of Paris, at the height of Maximilien Robespierre's terror campaign. The city of Toulon at this moment was controlled by anti-French forces composed of the English and Spanish. It was one of the few locations in France that would be thus willing to take in the Bonapartes. Lucien, Napoleon's little brother, was a prominent member of Robespierre's local Jacobin club within the city, but the family still chose to hide their true identities. 
outside the city, Napoleon joined up with a French regiment that was being run by the brother of an old friend. He was almost immediately shipped off to the Italian border. During his two months on campaign, he wrote a scathing essay designed to justify France's actions against individuals like Paoli. The quality of the writing brought Napoleon to the attention of Augustine Robespierre, brother of Maximilian. After an audience with Napoleon, the two immediately hit it off. Everything changed in this moment for the Bonaparte family. Napoleon's older brother Joseph was brought on to serve within the French government and was placed on a generous salary. Meanwhile, Napoleon was introduced to other influential generals and was immediately hired as an artillery commander. The skepticism which had destroyed his reputation was put to immediate rest. He was promoted further after he denounced his superiors for incompetence to the Committee on Public Safety. Ironically, his first major assignment after having his standing restored was to liberate Toulon, the refuge of his disgraced family. He distinguished himself in Toulon largely because the topography was eerily similar to that of his hometown in Corsica. He prominently utilized artillery to keep the English navy at bay. Then, after months of fighting, he managed to move his cannons so close that he was at one point knocked off of his feet by the wind from a passing cannonball. When the commander in charge of the infantry's advance faltered, Napoleon personally led the charge with an extra 2,000 men. He again narrowly avoided death as his horse was shot out from under him. After two hours of bitter fighting, the fort that protected the city was theirs. A few hours later, they found Major Bonaparte lying wounded on the battlefield with an English pike embedded within his inner left thigh just above the knee. The first surgeon to see the wound declared that it ought to be amputated, but a second opinion saved his leg and his military career. The English were forced to abandon the city soon afterwards, and Napoleon was promoted to the rank of brigadier general. McLinn explains the significance of the battle, which had primarily occurred because of the women in his life, with the following words. Toulon was a significant milestone in Napoleon's career, and he always looked back on it with romantic nostalgia. Anyone who was with him at Toulon could in later years be certain of promotions and rewards. He had already met many of the people who had loomed large in the consular and imperial periods. De Sec, Duroc, Junot, Marmotte, Victor, Suchet. Napoleon had now made his reputation among elite circles, even if he was still a long way from being a household name. His moment within the inner circle didn't last long, however. After recovering from his wounds, he was dispatched by the Robespierre brothers on a secret mission. It was during this time away from Paris that the Thermidorian reaction a coup by members of the right took down and ultimately guillotined Robespierre. As a known close supporter, Napoleon was immediately placed under house arrest 
as he had been falsely implicated in a secret plot to rescue Maximilian by the same man that had introduced him years ago to the brothers, a man who now was trying to save his own skin by throwing others under the proverbial bus. Ultimately, Napoleon was saved when the complaint against him was withdrawn, as everyone had begun to realize that the new government, which stylized itself as a five-man directory, wasn't out for bloodshed in the same way that the last government had been. They were more interested in inventing concepts such as lunch, which became a thing during this era as the old-style dinner hour was pushed back by a few hours, allowing for a new forked midday meal in France. Better times were ahead. Terror was at an end, and Napoleon was again restored to his exalted position within the army. Having survived his brush with death, he decided that in 1794 was as good of a year as any others to have his second encounter with a prostitute, coming away this time with complaints about the itch, which was likely a form of eczema, which shares similarities to herpes. While it is commonly accepted that this was the source for his chronic skin condition, there are a number of ways that he could have contracted it that don't involve scandalous affairs. After this encounter, he would go on to flirt with a number of women, some of whom were married. There are also reports that indicate the possibility that he fathered a child while serving on the Italian front. However, it is quite difficult to believe any memories by guys when they are boasting of their conquests, a term that Napoleon literally used in his private journals to describe these encounters. Disturbingly, he admitted later on in life that he had needlessly sacrificed the lives of some of his men in a futile attack on an enemy position on the Italian front simply to show off to one particular lady. In September of 1795, he proposed to a woman he called Desiree. He was 26, and she was a youthful 16. The mid-twenties were the typical age for a man in France to settle down and explore matrimony. Unfortunately, his proposal wasn't legitimate, as McLinn tells us that Napoleon liked to test the waters by making frivolous marriage proposals just to see how his social status was perceived by others. If a member of the elite rejected him, then he just had to climb higher. His letters to Desiree make it clear that he wasn't head over heels. Take this letter, which was sent from the Italian front, which reads as, Your unfailing sweetness and the gay openness which is yours alone inspire me with affection, dear Desiree. But I am so occupied by work, I don't think this affection ought to cut into my soul and leave a deeper scar. In other words, you're great, but now just isn't a good time for me. When she didn't take the hint, he proceeded to viciously point out all of her shortcomings. Still, the two did become lovers. However, as historian Ruth Skur points out, Napoleon became increasingly jealous and possessive of Desiree. Eventually, he became consumed by suspicions of her infidelity. 
in all likelihood he was projecting his own fidelity issues upon her. It was from this relationship that the book Kleisold et Eugenie was birthed into our world. Amazingly, the book, which is authored by Napoleon, was recently discovered sitting on the archives of the French National Library in Paris for the very first time. Although his name doesn't appear on it, the work was authenticated by handwriting experts and historians. The text was heavily edited and revised by Napoleon himself, containing many annotations in his own hand. Clisson et Eugenie tells the story of a young couple who fall in love, but are separated by war and political turmoil. The hero, Clison, the stand-in for Napoleon, is a young officer who falls in love with Eugene, a beautiful and virtuous young woman. An annotation denotes that the anonymous author found the name Eugene far more refined and dignified than the erotically charged Desiree. They are deeply in love, but their happiness is threatened by the tumultuous events of the time, including the French Revolution and the wars that it spawned. Here is how Napoleon described the main characters. Clisold was born for war. While still a child, he knew the lives of all the great captains. He meditated on military tactics at a time when other boys of his age were at school or chasing girls. As soon as he was old enough to shoulder arms, brilliant actions marked his every step. One victory succeeded another, and his name was as renowned among the people as those of their dearest defenders. Eugene was 16 years old. She was gentle, good, and vivacious, with pretty eyes and of medium size. Without being ugly, she was not a beauty, but goodness, sweetness, and a lively tenderness were essential parts of her nature. The writing is heavy-handed and leaves nothing to imagination. The work includes cheesy lines such as, All my feelings are blended into one and I have but one desire, to be with you, to hold you in my arms, to tell you how much I love you. As well as the cliché, How can I leave you when every moment away from you feels like an eternity? Napoleon's character seems to be a dutiful boyfriend, telling Eugene that my love for you is the only thing that keeps me going in this cruel and senseless world. Yet the book turns dark upon the theme of betrayal by Eugene. While wounded in battle, the Napoleon stand-in sends his right-hand man, Burville, to comfort Eugene but the two fall in love. With his heart broken, Clissold decides that it is best to just die in battle. On that fateful night, he writes a letter at 2 a.m. bidding farewell to his love. The letter reads as this, How many unhappy men regret being alive yet long to continue living. Only I wish to have done with life. It was Eugene who gave it to me, Farewell, my life's arbiter, farewell, companion of my happy days. In your arms I have tasted supreme happiness. I have drained life dry and all its good things. What remains now but satiety and boredom? At twenty-six I have exhausted the ephemeral pleasures of fame, but in your love I have known how sweet it is to be alive. That memory breaks my heart. 
May you live happily and think no more of the unhappy Clissold. Kiss my sons, may they grow up without their father's ardor, for then they would be like him, victims of other men, of glory and of love. McLean attempts to put on his literary analyst hat, writing that to marry Desiree, Napoleon seems to hint, is to expose himself to the full blast of romantic love with its almost inevitable heartache, and given his opinion of women, virtually certain betrayal. Desiree's very status as a virgin when Napoleon took her is paradoxically felt to be what is most threatening about her. He soon broke off the relationship after he had begun to cheat on her regularly. McLean tells us that certainly in these dark days in Paris in the summer of 1795, Napoleon contemplated suicide. At other times, he thought of going into service with the Sultan of Turkey. While mulling around lost within the city of love, he found a new patron, Paul Comte de Barras, an ex-Jacobin minister of the directory. Barras was, like many politicians, corrupt, immoral, cynical, and opportunistic. In 1795, his house was described by those who knew him as a glorified brothel. It was Barras that saved Napoleon from being sent away to the worst part of the front. The order that came included a demotion for his failure to serve during the past year. Napoleon had always been quick to call in sick whenever he thought he could get away with it. Barris got him a post in the Topographical Bureau of the Committee of Public Safety. The position guaranteed that he would retain his rank of Brigadier General, but Napoleon immediately ruined this sweetheart deal. Having heard that his request to serve the Turkish Sultan had finally been accepted, he mistakenly rushed to tell his superiors who had just stuck out their necks to place him on the committee. They denied the request, and on September 15th, struck his name from the list of French generals. The reason given was his refusal to serve in the previous campaign. His career was now at a dangerous crossroads. Fortunately, both France and Boris faced a similar dilemma. The 1795 attempt at a constitution vested executive power within a five-person directory. In October, royalists rose up and seven sections of Paris subsequently declared themselves independent, beginning an attempted right-wing coup against an already extreme right-wing government. Napoleon could have chosen either side in the conflict, but ultimately convinced Boris to restore his rank so he could put down the rebellion. The Directory was so bereft of soldiers at this moment of crisis that they had begun to release prisoners in an effort to force them into service. On paper, Napoleon was handed 70,000 men, but the experienced general claimed that only five to 6,000 of them were quote-unquote effectives. With this motley crew, he was tasked with putting down a 20,000-strong royalist force that was moving swiftly towards the palace in an ever-contracting ring of steel. 
Napoleon placed 4,000 of his effectives in a circle surrounding the seat of government, blasting the oncoming rebels with concentrated murderous artillery fire of what McLinn describes as a kind never yet experienced in the revolutionary street battles. The insurgents were forced to flee into a church, but Napoleon calmly advanced his artillery, leveling their sanctuary with little concern for how God felt about his earthly home, serving as the tombstone for so many. By the end of the day, 400 corpses lay entombed, while another thousand remained where they lie on the street. Rather than hunting them down one by one, the directory were so confident that the message had been received that they merely opened the gates of Paris overnight so the survivors could flee in abject terror of what Napoleon Bonaparte was capable of. A week later, Boris told his colleagues, promote this man or he will promote himself without you. Napoleon became the de facto governor of Paris in control of the city's police forces. At 26, he was rich, famous, and exceptionally powerful. He soon threw extravagant parties at his new home, wined and dined the elite within his own personal opera box, and drove around Paris for no other reason than to be seen atop his fine new carriage. Boris, already used to the trappings of the elite, largely ignored the actions of his star pupil. Or at least he did until he found himself in the challenging position of needing to pawn his favored mistress off. In this moment, Napoleon went from his protege to his patsy, immediately falling head over heels for Rose de Bothanos, the woman that he would forever refer to as Josephine. The courtship between Josephine and Napoleon is one of the most romantic and intriguing love stories of all time. It is a tale of passion, intrigue, and political ambition set against the backdrop of one of the most tumultuous periods in French history. Apple TV is attempting to tackle the romance later in 2023 in the self-titled Napoleon. Josephine was born on the island of Martinique in the Caribbean. She was the daughter of a wealthy plantation owner and was known for her beauty, charm, and grace. Yet upon meeting her, we would likely all be disgusted by her complete set of blackened teeth from her days as a child sitting around the plantation sucking on raw sugar cane. In 1779, at the age of 16, she was married to Alexander de Bothanos, a French nobleman with whom she had two children, However, Josephine's life took a tragic turn during the French Revolution. Her husband was accused of being a counter-revolutionary and was executed by way of the guillotine in 1794. Josephine herself was imprisoned for a time, but was released thanks to the timely intervention of Boris. In thanks, she soon took on the role of his mistress. When he tired of her, the director introduced her to Napoleon, who was immediately taken with Josephine's beauty and charm, and the two began a passionate and intense romance. 
Unfortunately, it was a largely one-sided romance, with Josephine viewing Napoleon as a new meal ticket, which would allow her to remain pampered within high society. Money clearly meant a lot to her. After all, she named her pug Fortune. At this moment, however, that dog was her closest claim to money. In fact, she was so destitute that she begged Boris to hide her financial situation from Napoleon. She feared that her lottery ticket would blow away with the wind. Napoleon's letters to Josephine positively ooze with desperation, while Josephine's merely point out the facts and figures of the day. She regularly read out Napoleon's letters to her girlfriends, who would gather around to literally laugh at the ridiculous words that the general passionately wrote. In one such letter, he writes, What an extraordinary influence you have over my heart. Are you vexed? Do I see you sad? Are you ill at ease? My soul is broken with grief, and there is no rest for your lover. But is there more for me when delivering ourselves up to the deep feelings which master me? I breathe out upon your lips, upon your heart, a flame which burns me up. In another he offers, My unique Josephine, away from you there is no more joy. Away from you is a wilderness in which I stand alone and without experiencing the bliss of unburdening my soul. You have robbed me of more than my soul. You are the one only thought of my life. To live for Josephine, that is the history of my life. I am struggling to get near you. I am dying to be at your side. I know not what fate awaits me, but if it keeps me much longer from you, it will be unbearable. My strength will not last out. The theme of suffering was a constant in 1796 when he wrote, I have gazed steadfastly on the most incredible misfortunes without a wrinkle on my brow or a vestige of surprise. But today the thought that my Josephine might be ill and above all the cruel, the fatal thought that she might love me less blights my soul, stops my blood, makes me wretched and dejected without even leaving me with the courage of fury and despair. I often used to say that men have no power over him who dies without regrets, but today to die without your love, to die in uncertainty of that is the torment of hell. It is a lifelike and terrifying figure of absolute annihilation. I feel passion strangling me. Josephine clearly despised large parts of Napoleon's personality and looks, but McLynn tells us that she weighed all of this, and against the minuses were some powerful pluses. Her own charms were fading fast, and the supply of influential admirers would sooner or later dry up. She felt she had a hold over Napoleon, which she had never had over Boris. Also, Bonaparte had the makings of an excellent stepfather, and her son needed a male guardian he could look up to. The two were married on March 9th in a rush ceremony at a courthouse after it had become known that Napoleon was to be sent off to war. Napoleon was 26 and Josephine 33. 
but both split the difference and declared themselves on the marriage certificate to be 28. While Napoleon was just happy to have the bride of his dreams, Josephine had encouraged a civil union rather than a religious one so that the inevitable divorce would be easier to obtain. She was already looking beyond Napoleon, a man that she tolerated at best, a fact shown that she was continuing to have sexual relations with Boris right up to the night before she said, I do. The wedding night was an even worse sign for the future, as Josephine insisted that her pug remain in the bed as they consummate their nuptials. Infamously, Fortune even nipped him in the behind when Napoleon made a frontal charge upon his new wife. Josephine told her friends about the bedding as soon as Napoleon left for war, pointing out that the evening's events were so rapid and poorly done that her husband was bon a rien, or good for nothing. The courtship had been a whirlwind, so much so that Napoleon had yet to break off his previous relationship with Desiree. Worse, she still didn't know about the nearly dozen women that Napoleon had cheated on her with. Rather than calmly telling her that he was no longer interested, something that he had promised to do two years earlier in an impassioned letter, he pressed her, informing her that unless her parents immediately consented to a wedding, then they had to break off the relationship. It was a bold feint that he was confident would succeed, as she had long informed him about her parents' feelings regarding her tender young age in comparison to Bonaparte. Soon she received word that her ex had not only moved on, but was now married. Here's an excerpt from her heartbroken letter to her former lover. You have made me so unhappy, and I am weak enough to forgive you. You, married. Poor Desiree must no longer love you or think of you. My one consolidation is that you will know how steadfast I am. I have nothing more to hope for but death. Life is a torment to me since I may no longer dedicate it to you. You, married. I cannot grasp the thought. It kills me. Never shall I belong to another and I had so hoped soon to be the happiest of women, your wife. Your marriage has shattered my happiness. Clearly, Napoleon had given up on a woman who truly cared for him, in exchange for a gold digger who could barely contain her disdain for him. Incredibly, Desiree ends her letter in the following manner. All the same, I wish you the greatest joy and blessing in your marriage. May the woman you have chosen make you as happy as I had intended to make you, and as happy as you deserve to be. In the midst of your present happiness, do not quite forget poor Desiree, and be sorry for her fate. Women have always been better at taking the high road. Decisions such as Napoleon's continue to defy natural order, but love oftentimes makes us behave stupidly. Fran Lebowitz might have put it best, stating that romantic love is mental illness, but it's a pleasurable one. 
Perhaps women are the one remaining answer among the 99 that reveal themselves to be monetary in nature. In regards to the problems that came along with Josephine, the answer clearly involved both. McLean asked the question, what possessed Napoleon to marry a penniless Creole, six years his elder and with fading looks? Among his thoughts on the answer is that, at the simplest level, it can be argued that Napoleon anchored himself to the ruling elite by this marriage to one of its leading female icons. Some have gone so far as to say that Boris forced him to marry Josephine as a quid pro quo for the supreme command in Italy. Still, Napoleon's desperate outpouring of desire in his letters to his wife show that even if it began in such a fashion, for Napoleon it quickly turned into love. The mentally ill variety. An alternative view is that Napoleon was naive, thought Josephine was of higher rank than she was, and imagined that he had married into the aristocracy. Thus, he was quite confused when an investigation into how large her family's plantations in Martinique came up empty on any and all details. A contemporary general of Napoleon's, Auguste Marmont, revealed that Napoleon almost certainly believed at the time that he had taken a greater step upwards than ever he felt when he married the daughter of the Caesars. McLean reveals to us that Josephine was exactly the kind of woman who was likely to appeal to a man who was sexually insecure and misogynistic. She was unchallenging, feather-brained, feminine in all the traditional ways. Keep in mind that Napoleon once wrote to his brother Joseph that women are nothing but machines for producing children. He also referred to women as the toys of our youth and the instruments of our pleasure. Josephine was a woman who was willing to play that part. Later in life, after the marriage had fallen apart, Napoleon revealed that I really did love her, but I had no respect for her. Historian Dorothy Carrington asked a deeper Freudian question. Was his marriage to Josephine, who combined all the traits that his mother deplored, was this Napoleon's masterpiece against the adored mother who had deceived him? McLean pulls on this string by pointing out that Freud, the noted Austrian psychologist, suggested that Napoleon's complex about his brother Joseph was why he insisted on renaming Rose Josephine. But it seems more plausible to assume that the deep dynamic in this case focused on Napoleon's unconscious feelings about his mother rather than his brother. In taking an older and promiscuous woman as his wife, Napoleon showed himself to be in the thrall to a peculiar mother complex. His mother, the object of his unintegrated emotion, was also someone he loved but did not respect, and the principal reason for such had been her infidelity. This is undoubtedly the most profound reason why he opted for Josephine rather than Desiree. As a young girl who was almost religiously faithful to him during his long absence in Paris, Desiree did not have the attributes required. Josephine, the unfaithful mother on the other hand, satisfied all the deep-seated resentments buried within the Napoleonic unconscious. 
two days after his wedding, Napoleon left Paris intent on providing a needed distraction for the people of France via a successful war against Austria in Italy. There he hoped to continue rising within the hearts of the French people whom he had finally begun to identify with. He would seek to export the remaining ideals of the French Revolution and plan to single-handedly stop the bleeding of the French treasury by sending back so much loot that the nation could once again finally claim to be among the world's elite. That story will be told in our next episode. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry at gmail.com. If you would like to financially support the show, please look in the show description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.